0: get into that. So Dave asked me to share with you guys today, and we are going to be in the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to Revelation chapter 3. We are looking at a wonderful church in the book of Revelation today. It's probably the best church ever in the entire Bible and you'll see why in a second. But before we do that, I have a few quotes for you that have nothing to do with the lesson, but made me laugh, so I thought I'd put them on the screen. But go back to my quotes. Yes. If trees could scream, would we be so cavalier about cutting them down? We might if they screamed all the time for no good reason. Um, These are Jack Handy quotes. This is an old school character from Saturday Night Live that makes me laugh. I don't care if he makes you laugh. He makes me laugh. So uh let's see the next one. If a kid asks where rain comes from, I think a cute thing to tell him is God is crying. And if he asks why God is crying, another cute thing to tell him is probably because something you did. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. I tell that to my kids all the time. Uh What else? I got another one. I can picture in my mind a world without war, a world without hate, and I can picture us attacking that world because they never expect it. <laughs> That's awesome. All uh, right, one more. I think we have one more. Before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. So there's that to think about. Some of you are Googling Jack Handy right now. Uh, <clears throat> there are lots of them, some not so church appropriate, but uh, pretty stinking funny. Anyway, what were we talking about? Philadelphia. So go throw that, throw that uh, picture up. Uh, the reason why I said this is the most amazing church, I think we have a picture of Philadelphia, uh slide of Philadelphia somewhere. Go back. Look at Philadelphia. There's a Philadelphia slide somewhere in there, I believe. Yes! It says Philadelphia. You just can't read it. Because it has stars all over the letters. Uh, yeah, Philadelphia. That's the church we're talking about. Uh, obviously we're not talking about the city in the Northeast, but I like to highlight that, uh, because we love people like fictional characters like Rocky and, uh, our Liberty Bell and, uh, pretty much your history, the reason why you exist is because Philadelphia exists. I like to remind people about that. Um, it was the first capital of the United States. It was where your freedom was granted. So uh, it's good stuff. Philadelphia is amazing. Uh, the reason why I love it so much, of course, for those that don't know, is I grew up there. So I am a transplanted Philadelphian. Although I moved closer to becoming a Texan two weeks ago, I got a pickup truck. So, now, yeah, now I just need the big belt buckle and some cowboy boots, and I'll be good. And I need Candace to sit in the middle of the front row, because that's what she should do as a Texan, right? Is that right? No? They don't do that anymore? Okay. Moving on. Uh, I was really looking forward to that. Uh Anyway, so the Church of Philadelphia... Actually, the city of Philadelphia does get its name from this church. It's kind of interesting. There is a tie-in. The city of brotherly love, if you look at the history of this church in Revelation 3, there were two brothers in that church that were known for their love for one another. They actually were known for caring for one another, for taking care of each other. And that's where the city in the Northeast actually got its name. This church of Philadelphia actually existed uh for twelve hundred years. So you got TBC that's in existence for maybe I don't know, forty years or so? A little bit longer. So twelve hundred years this church of Philadelphia was around. And I think we have a slide maybe of uh kind of introduction slide of it's talking about 30 miles southeast of Sardis. There we go. Alright, so the church background. So you can't see it very well, the little map there. But if you look in almost dead center, two-thirds of the way up the picture, you'll see Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia is in present-day Turkey. Uh, the church was there, 30 miles southeast of Sardis. I think Pastor Chase maybe talked to you guys about Sardis last week. Uh, so brotherly love, two actual brothers in the original church. Uh, it was prone uh, to earthquakes. So similar to California, it, it sits that area sits on some major fault lines, and so it actually is known for uh catastrophic events, including earthquakes. And so you'll see in the writing, and before I researched this for this lesson, I didn't really know this, that some of the writing you'll see in here uh is is to encourage them through tragedy because they probably observed family members, friends die. As a result of catastrophic catastrophic events like these earthquakes. So it's kind of an interesting situation. Um, there was a devastating one on record in history in AD 17. So, uh, before this book was written, uh, you actually, they, they were probably still living with the repercussions from that devastating earthquake that they experienced. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, you can go to the next slide. I think it's Revelation 3, 7 to 10. I think we have the verses up there, but if you have it, You can read it as well. So we're looking at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. I would also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So let's pray together as we get into this passage. Dear God, we uh, thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be in your word pray that you'll clear our mind of distractions right now. So many people are thinking of a million different things right now. I just pray that you'll focus our hearts and our attention on your word, not on me, not on uh, any uh, clever thing that is said, but most importantly, your word, God, that that is powerful, that is sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray that you'll pierce us to the heart to help us understand what you have for us today. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's look at the next slide. Uh, there's a reference in there. There's some crazy stuff in this passage. And one of them is the key of David is referenced. And once again, I had to kind of look into that a little bit because he's writing and he's like, uh, alright, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Anybody have any idea what that is? Anybody want to guess? the key of David. Don't be shy. Like, I don't want to say anything. I might be wrong. And everyone will laugh at me. I might laugh at you. But no one else will, okay? Anybody want to guess? Mr. Mahler, you want to guess? Jesus, that, see, he's been in church a long time. If there's ever a question that a speaker asks and you don't know the answer to it, if you say, Jesus... It's actually at least partially right, because the Bible is all about Jesus. And actually, this is specifically about Jesus. So give him a big round of applause, Mr. Mahler. We're going to have him come up and teach the rest of this lesson. Uh, yes, it alludes to Isaiah 22.20. And it's actually the incident of transferring the post of Secret- Secretary of State in Judah from the unfaithful Shebna to the faithful Eliakim. So these are kind of, that's kind of a weird reference. So the key of David this this evil secretary of state was given over to this powerful godly secretary of state. But the key signifies the power of the keys that were normally held by the king himself. All right? So he uses the word David and you have to follow these connections because they're they're kind of drawn out. But you have to follow these because he uses the word David, who Jesus came from the line of David. So when often the Old Testament referenced David, it was talking about the future king being Jesus, the answer that was correct. So he says the key of David, it signifies the power of these keys that were transferred from one secretary of state to another And then it signifies the power of those keys. He uses the name David. It points to Christ as the Messiah who alone determines who will participate in His kingdom, who will be turned away. And that's why you see in that passage, He opens the door. No one can shut. He decides who gets in. He decides who is in the kingdom. And so the key of David is actually the key to eternal life. The key to eternal life as a Christian the relationship with God forever. And so he references this, and it was confusing to me until I looked into it. It also alludes a little bit to the false claims of certain Jews in Philadelphia who argued that they, not the heretical Nazarenes, would inherit the kingdom of David and so excluded the followers of Jesus. And so the writer here, John, is trying to say, no, this doesn't exclude them. They actually are part of the Messiah. And so that kind of clears up a little bit of the key of David. I know some of you are just like, uh, I have no idea you're confusing me. I apologize. So next uh, slide. Uh, we're going to look at the, the passage here in verse 8. Uh, and we're just going to look at uh, three major things that we can see in the Church of Philadelphia. Three things to learn from, three things to notice that will help us. The first one is that their works were obvious to God. Their works were not hidden to God. And so um, in verse 8 you see he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. It's kind of an interesting contrast to the church last week. What was the church of Sardis known for? Anybody remember? Anybody? Speak up. It's time for you to talk. What was the church of Sardis known for? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. They did this a lot, like I do. They talked a lot, but they had no works to back up their claims. They had nothing to back up through action. They said they were believers. They said they trusted in Jesus, but their works denied that claim. Look at Matthew 7 up here. Matthew 7 says, uh, yeah, there you go. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So this is kind of an interesting thing. You know, it's an interesting uh vantage point that I have as a junior high pastor. So as a junior high pastor... A lot of you, I've watched you go from fifth grade, uh, and now some of you are graduating or graduated, uh, now past tense for some of you. It's an interesting vantage point. Now, I'm not saying I watch you like in a creepy way, because that would be strange and I'd probably get fired, but uh, <laughs> that's weird. Uh, I'm not going to stay there because that's awkward. Maybe I will just because I like awkward. Let's just sit. No. Uh, all right. So it's kind of an interesting vantage point that I have. I sit and I watch and I see what you do. And so I see from fifth or eighth grade some of you getting involved in, in uh, ministry, serving, you know, leading an impact, and even as seventh and eighth graders jumping in and just going all out for Jesus. And I see these this desire in your heart to know God. I see you participate in things. And not just that your participation is what makes you holy, but it is a sign of that there is actually a desire there for something spiritual. And so I watch that. And then I get to be here in the building when you move up to 9th grade, 10th, 11th, and 12th. And I'm around... And I'm around again in that creepy way, because I'm like not in here, but I'm kind of here, and so I see you and i watch and but i what i what is interesting in my vantage point is that I observe and I observe some of you who I am so 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 proud of in the faith, just like Paul would write to Timothy to say you know You're my man, you're my boy. I see you doing things that are amazing and I see you following Jesus and you're growing in your faith and I'm so excited and so I stand up here as a junior high uh, pastor even now saying, man, I'm so happy to watch you grow and it's awesome to see. But then there's other of you that are here but you're not really all the way here. You're on the fence. Your your works, your words say some things, but they really don't match your actions. And in that case, you know, it kind of makes me sad. I don't have a lot of sad emotions. I'm usually a pretty positive guy. Uh, I have one feeling, and sometimes that gets hurt once in a while. But, you know, sometimes it makes me sad, you know, to look and be like, man, they were so gung-ho and so on fire about Jesus and some of it might have been just your ADD energy coming out, and you really didn't care. But you was just like, ah, you know. But some, you know, some of you, it's like, man, you just kind of cooled off, so to speak, and you really aren't following Jesus like you were. And so, to this, it's it's this passage is really powerful because it says, "Look, you will be known by the fruit you produce." Just like the Church of Philadelphia, they were known by their works. They were obvious to God. God could look down and see them and see they were for real. You can fake it to Dave. You can fake it to your parents. You can fake it to me and your leaders. You can do impact but not really care about it. You can do this or that because it's social. But you know what's true and powerful are these words that I will know, God will know, everyone will know by your works. The things you do are obvious. You can't hide. Some of you are are geniuses about hiding. And you're geniuses about how you make people think you're one thing and you're not. And so it's powerful, these words that John gives to the church of Philadelphia that hit us between the eyes as well. Maybe a question to ask ourselves is, could God see our works? Are they obvious to Him? Is it really obvious to God that you love Jesus? That you want your friends to know Jesus by your actions? Or is it something that's kind of you're in and out of? You're sometimes in, sometimes out. You're sometimes on it. When impact rolls around once a year, you're in it. And then the rest of the year, you're out. It's a good challenge for all of us, and it's powerful. I read another verse uh, in Second Corinthians uh, that I wanted you guys to to hear. I don't have it up on the slides, but um, let me turn there in my Bible uh, here. Second Corinthians, chapter five, verses fifteen to seventeen. I read this the other day in my little Bible reading plan. I'm doing it's just it hit me so hard. I'm like, I gotta read this for the high school kids. Here we go. It says. If you're in Christ, it's a very simple lesson. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. There should be new actions. There should be new words. There should be new things that we see in you. New desires. And those desires should grow. They shouldn't fade. They shouldn't be like, hey, I was on fire in 5th and 6th grade, but now I'm in 10th and 11th grade, and now I'm not. Now I'm kind of coasting. If you truly are a follower of Jesus, this is what sh- it should look like. Now, sometimes it looks like this. It has in my life. <laughs> so maybe not quite that, but maybe. But it still should be getting closer to God. Nobody's standing up here saying you should be perfect as a high school kid, but you should be growing in your faith and your fruit should be obvious. So that's number one. Number two. They were shut out of the synagogue. This was kind of interesting. So the church of Philadelphia, they were a small little church. In the, in the passage, you'll see even references their size was small. Uh, not small like they're short, but they just had a few people in the church, right? And so there was an issue they had where they didn't have a physical place to meet. And and often when people wanted to meet, they could use the synagogues and they could use places of worship to meet. But in this situation, they were shut out of the synagogue. Look at verse nine. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, uh, but lie. Behold, I will make them come bow down at your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. And even in the end of verse eight, he says, I know that you have little power and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. So he calls them small so synagogue of satan is kind of interesting uh you don't see that very often in the bible or even in language like uh marshall and these guys like i've never called them even though they've caused problems here and there at mission g i never said you're you're part of a synagogue of satan i mean that would be pretty graphic maybe i wanted to here and there but i never did uh, personally, But a synagogue of Satan doesn't <laughs> refer to someone who's acting up. It actually describes a Jewish element that vehemently denied Jesus as Messiah and that actively persecuted others who made this claim. In this letter, Christ reverses these roles. His followers are the people of God. Jewish unbelievers are the pagans who come and acknowledge the love of the Messiah for the church. So you have this situation where this zealous group not only didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they went out of their way, like Paul used to do when he was Saul, to persecute Christians. And so this church of Philadelphia was being persecuted, possibly physically as well, where they were being hurt for their faith. And and John's trying to encourage them. Look, I see, I see. God sees your works. Christians were claiming to worship the one true God, and man, these Jews had a big problem with that. The Jews thought they worshipped the one true God, and you got this little tiny faction of believers that say, "No, you're wrong." You know, this group. Imagine this group of people, this large of a group, and you got maybe those five back there saying know that you're there saying something different than all you believe. And you were brought up believing for centuries. You're, you're, you were taught to believe this for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then these five come along and say, no, what your mom taught you is wrong. What your grandmom taught you, no, not true. Jesus is the true Messiah. And so this is what was happening. The Church of Philadelphia is a tiny little church, not a lot of power, and they were being persecuted. So they were shut out of the synagogue. <clears throat> they claimed that the Messiah had come, which obviously didn't sit well with the Jews in Philadelphia. And then the third one, the final one, is that their fruit was obvious and God promised salvation to them. Look at verses 10 to 13. Because you have kept my word about patience, patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast that you... Uh, what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So their fruit was obvious to God, and God promised salvation to them. It's kind of interesting. Um, there's another passage that's more popular. um Go ahead and hit the next slide there. Uh, there was a more popular uh passage than this one about knees bowing down. If you look at Philippians two ten and eleven it says that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> so you see this passage saying, Look, yes, you are a small group of people. Yes, you are believers who are faithful, but here 's what's coming what's coming is justice." What's coming is righteousness. What's coming is salvation. And the people that are persecuting you will eventually bow down whether they like it or not. They eventually will fall on their knees and worship God, whether they do it willingly or whether they're forced to do it. And he's giving them some kind of encouragement here to say, I promised you salvation. So there's some confusion sometimes in the hour of trial, that that passage a little bit saying what does that mean and most scholars are in agreement it's not necessarily uh you know trial when referring to the tribulation and the rapture and things like that which revelation talks about a lot but it's if if you look deeply into it you you probably see that it's more along the lines of the trial coming when god judges everybody believers or not the sheep and the goats he's separating them for those that are believers and those that are not and it's going to be a horrible trial uh, for those that don't believe. And so they all will bow down. They will bow down. The question is, do they do it willingly or they do it uh reluctantly? And then he, he throws in there one thing that really confused me as well, and so you know, I looked into it a little bit more, verse twelve. The one who conquers I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So that's kind of interesting. There's a picture of a temple with some pillars from back in the day that they've excavated, uncovered, and and, uh, discovered. But uh, it's kind of interesting that a lot of the synagogues had pillars, and a lot of these temples had pillars. And these pillars, uh, for those that were well-known in history in these communities, these pillars, they would get their name on these pillars inscribed. So you could go, and if your like grandfather was like really famous in the church or in the synagogue or in the temple, you could actually go and see his name etched in the stone of these pillars, and their names were up there forever for the, for people to see, and even to discover now, uh, when they discover these ruins of these temples, they still see names and so this is what John is referring to he's saying you're not going to be have a name on a physical pillar in a temple but your name is going to be written down in the book of life your name is going to be known by god and and your name you will be known by name to the god who created the universe and because you are known by name through the power of jesus christ and his death on the cross and his burial and his resurrection your name will be inscribed on that pillar, meaning you are in the book of life. You have salvation. You have eternity with God in heaven. And so he promises that to them, and of course that's promised to us too. So in conclusion, wrapping it up here, there's a few things I just wanted to look at. Maybe next slide, I think we have something on there. A few things, three things. <clears throat> Encouragement is a powerful force. John uses some powerful encouragement here and hopefully you can take his, his, uh, cue and, and be an encourager. Jesus speaks to the church of Philadelphia and says, I see what you're doing. I know it's hard. I love you very much and I'm very proud of you. And here's what happens. They continue for 1200 years. That's the powerful force of encouragement. So he comes in, he says, I see what you're doing. And for me, uh, going back to the creepy reference of me being someone who observes you, is I can say to most of you in this room, those that I knew in 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, most of you I can say, man, keep it up. Stop talking, but keep it up. Yeah. Uh I can say, yes, you're doing awesome. I can see you. I can see you in action. And it makes me happy. It makes me glad. It fills me with joy. To know that uh the Bible says, oftentimes it says that my children walk in truth. So it fills your leaders with joy. It fills me with joy to see that. And for me, it's a it's a time for me that I don't get up here often to talk to you to encourage you and say, keep it up. Keep moving forward. Keep devoting yourself to Jesus and the Word and prayer. And you're going to see some awesome, awesome things. And number two, God sees your works. He knows your motives. You can't fake it with Him. talked about that already. God sees you. Just like he saw Jonah, and he, Jonah tried to run like an idiot. And we call him an idiot, but we have to include ourselves because we do the same dumb stuff. Some reason we think we can, uh, somehow we, we separate our walk with Christ with our actions that we're addicted to. Some of you guys have this issue with pornography and somehow you think that God does not see you and somehow you set it up so that it's like this is my one world and this is my other world. Some of you girls are addicted to that as well. Some of you girls are messed up in other stuff. And you have these two worlds that you live in, and the reality is it's not true. You're living a lie, and you're fooling yourself, and you're, you're really submitting to Satan's lie, and he's got you. And so the challenge is God sees your works. He knows your motives. He can't fake it. Number three, which church are you like? The church of Sardis. Man, you appear alive. Even your parents are so proud of you for whether it's doing impact or, or you used to do Mission G or 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 you, you're you helping lead a Bible study or whatever it is. You go to Christian school and, and do the million things you have to do. At Christian school, I grew up in one. And it was interesting. Uh, I loved my experience there, but it was just interesting because I was always, always... You know something with the word, something with the word, and sometimes it's oversaturation. So some of you have to deal with that too. So what are you like? Does do you appear to love God? Do you appear to be a follower of Christ, but your walk is something else? Or are you like the church in Philly, appearing alive, full of love and action, faithful and commended by God? Obviously, that's the goal. If we really trust in Jesus, we really know Him. Uh, Let's pray together. Dear God, we just thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word. Your word is very convicting, and we need that conviction. If we didn't have that conviction of your word and the Holy Spirit, then we'd just go on living like idiots, confused and trapped by the temptations of this world. But your word is powerful in it, and it blows through these walls of sin and helps us to see ourselves for who we really are, not the fake lives maybe we're trying to live. I pray that right now, as these high school students bow their head, close their eyes, and pray to you, that they will confess their need for you. They will confess the sin that drags them down, that enslaves them. They will be like the church of Philadelphia that is commended by you because you see their good works. You see the result of the power of Christ living in them. We praise you for them and I'm so encouraged to watch most of them live for you and grow in you and even even soon to watch them and continue training and impact.